Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Try to drive down a road, they think it's going to open. It never is going to open again. But people here don't adapt as, as, as rapidly because I think we don't expect change. And when change is, a no- change is the norm and at the rate that it happened in those markets, people adapt. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. And for those who've been joining us in today, it's my distinct pleasure to share with you the wonder of who are we talking to knowing about all this Internet of Things technology, artificial intelligence, and data science. Well, today's guest on the Humane podcast is Brett Greenstein. Uh, He's an executive at Cognizant as a vice president and global head of artificial intelligence who has a commensurate experience in the Internet of Things technology, consulting, providing solutions in banking, healthcare, customer service, and retail with organizations including IBM and many Fortune 500 products that you've worked with and lived with on your day-to-day basis. Technology is immersing in our life each and every day. And, uh, you know, the funny joke I I make about all these beeps, uh, how much are they distracting, right? How much are they, you know, not helping versus helping? So that's the interesting question about augmenting human experience versus taking over human experience. I agree. I think, you know, we've gotten so used to the, for example, my phone only buzzes. So, but it buzzes constantly. And it's almost a Pavlovian response. I want to see what's going on. Um, it's hard to ignore a buzz, even though you know most of them are nothing. Um, and so we, we are conditioned to these alerts and triggers and lights and vibrations. Um, and then we, you know, we get wearables to help make it easier. And then I, I just read an article uh, yesterday about the glasses by Focus, I believe the company is, 
mm. basically like a modern version of Google Glass. And um, it looks like a, a, a nice set of updates to the idea. But do you, I don't really want to think you're getting notifications on your glasses while we're talking at a, over a coffee shop. You know, the other person can't see them, but you can. I think it's so interesting. It's like a privacy debate. You know, for me, being someone who's weared glasses since I've been five years old, um, there would be no difference, right? It would just be right. having a glasses. But the question is privacy ethics bias. Um, if I was living in China, where data is more regularly traded as a commodity um, mm -hmm. for society as a whole, perhaps it'd be great to see this is going on, WeChat, and here's my transaction, and here's my update to my credit system when I'm buying uh, Tencent Music, a new album. Yeah. Um, but then the question is here in the United States, um, is that something people are ready for? You sound like someone who spent some time in China. Uh, I've traveled a little bit, for sure, and uh, I love culture. Uh, before we were hopping on the recording, you know, Brett and I were catching up about a recent trip I had in Lima, Peru, in Guayaquil, Ecuador, um, to see the distinctions of technology and culture. Uh, you know, Brett, I have originally um, grew up in South Florida. I was in the Miami area. I've seen a lot of the art uh, district, design district, Basel, all of that take fruit. And when I was in Lima, Peru, I was mentioning to one of my colleagues, this looks like Miami. It, it, it's amazing to see how the United States really is a melting pot of culture uh, and technology. And also how quickly the rest of the world has, in some cases, leapfrog technology here because they didn't have that infrastructure. And, you know, it was, I, I lived in China for a while. And one of the reasons I moved there was because of the 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 book the you know the Earth is flat Thomas Friedman, and it, it got me really thinking about how quickly uh, cost of living, quality of life, access to technology was becoming more level around the world, and in some places surprisingly advanced um, compared to what we might be used to with current infrastructure in North America. So I I agree with you. You can go almost anywhere. You can work from almost anywhere. Um, and it, it's amazingly um, unifying that the internet reaches in every corner. I I think as someone who hasn't lived in China, but who's traveled quite a bit, that we're seeing a renaissance occurring there today, right? You have startups like Huya, which is doing live streaming for their version of games, like we see with Fortnite in the, the US, mm -hmm. even have... Um, uh, IQIYI, uh, which does television streaming. Um, you know, there's a lot of great startups that are growing really fast. And uh, what I'm always curious about in that market is not just the technology and that evolution with social monitoring and credit and, and privacy, mm -hmm. but from a cultural perspective, it's been very gradual in the United States, but it seemed to be such a rush in China. And from your experience, I mean, have, have you seen some of that? And what's your oh, thoughts there? There's no question. You know, what, what took 100 years in the United States, going from industrial revolution to people having cars to you know, uh, to multiple televisions and homes, to the internet. That took a hundred years and that happened in a generation in China. Um, it was not long ago. You can look, anyone can look online and see what pictures of Shanghai or Beijing look like only 20 years ago, mostly bikes in the roads. Now, you know, there's two Lamborghini dealerships in Shanghai. It's, it has moved so quickly. And I think what we have to appreciate in, in, in China, as well as some other markets, um, is how the culture and how people, have accepted the rate of change 
and how it's normal for things to completely change. When I lived there, my path to work would change every week because construction would happen. A road would disappear. A path would be gone. A new one would emerge. And people flexed with that. They adapted to it. In a way here, you've seen people that they they continue to try to drive down a road. They think it's going to open. It never is going to open again. But people here don't adapt as, as, as rapidly because I think we don't expect change. And when change is, a nor- when change is the norm and at the rate that it happened in those markets, people adapt and they're used to it. I think adaptation is something that does take a lot of time, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in China in particular, with how quickly this um, change is occurring, there's been new independent movies that came out on Netflix about the live streaming culture and mm-hmm. that phenomenon, how people are you know, working to be celebrities, how YouTube picked up here um, in the US. Um, I have uh, a really close friend in Shanghai, and you know they recently told me that uh, all transactions are digital, mm-hmm. right? Everything is digital. You can't even accept cash if you want to accept cash. And I think the question on that cultural perspective is at what point does this technology integration actually become a liability for society where it's an exclusion of uh, individuals who may not have that access? So I would have thought that would have occurred in China. When I heard that people were using Alipay and, 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 and WeChat Pay to, to pay with their phones using QR codes, I thought, okay, that's great as long as you have a phone, as long as you have a bank account, as long as you... But it turns out that not a lot of people had credit cards in in society in China, but everybody had a phone or it was accessible to a very, very high percentage. So now even street vendors selling something that costs almost nothing, it is more efficient for them to pay and accept payment by phone than any other means. Taking cash means also taking time to go to a bank, to deposit it, to wait for it to hit your account. This is instantaneous. You have instant access. So I think in a lot of ways, it would... It much harder for people here to accept payments through phones um, than it was in China. And I think they didn't have a credit card infrastructure or really um, the same level of, of access to banking, personal banking um, that we have here. And so in a way, they leapfrogged all of that. And a commercial provider made a great experience, frictionless, easy payment from me to you for as little as whatever, whatever amount we charge, as small as it is, there's no overhead to that. Whereas today, you know, in, in, in North America, for example, there's a there's a merchant fee for credit card transactions. That's you know, that would inhibit a street vendor from wanting to take credit cards. But there's no fee like that in China. Um, and so Alipay has been acceptable at so sort of all price points. And what's so interesting as we dive deeper into Alipay, uh, also in Asia Pacific, um, there is a lot less of that prevalence of using Visa and MasterCard. Um, mm-hmm. Recently, I, I know MasterCard settled uh, with Visa um, for billions of dollars in Europe um, for fees and, and having these barriers to entry, right, mm-hmm. which was limiting for companies. Um but altogether, it's being bypassed uh, in Asia. And in the U.S., uh, more recently, uh, Apple and Target uh, and a couple other companies just partnered with Apple Pay you know, to get on and, and finally said, we're fully ready to go all digital. So it, it seems that the U.S. is catching up, um, if you will. Uh, but the question begs... Um, you know, who, who's leading that direction right now in IoT and technology? Um, is it a game of U.S. and China or has China already, you know, they're leading the pack? 
well, they're leading the pack, but it doesn't um, permeate to other cultures and other other markets yet. Um, you know, you could ask, uh, you know, our colleagues at, at Visa or MasterCard why they didn't just roll out a QR-based system here. Um, what works here, based on the infrastructure and banking we have, doesn't necessarily translate um, to what China's doing. But I think you look at that solution and how frictionless it is. It's really pretty amazing. I hold up my phone, you hold up your phone, money moves back and forth magically. Uh, it, it, it almost is too simple for the average user. And you have to wonder why it's not here. And yet we have things we rely on and a comfort level with the things we have. If you remember when, when we all started banking and shopping online, there was a terrible fear of using your credit card on a website. Who's gonna intercept it? Who's gonna have it? There were all those stories how you give your credit card to a waiter, but you won't put it online. You know. And yet it resolved because the credit card companies and banks basically took away the liability from us. And if someone stole our card, we had no liability. So then it became safe to do that. And then security standards improved and we got comfortable. But are we ready to let go of the card that we hold in our hand that we know is protected by a name and a brand that we know, like Visa, um, for something else? Um, now, I think you probably would agree that um, there's an entire generation now growing up on gaming and apps who exchange virtual dollars constantly, um, who were also comfortable with, you know, all kinds of direct mobile payments between each other. That's emerging. And perhaps, you know, when that generation leads financial institutions in, in the United States and other businesses, may, maybe we're just on that path and just not quite as quickly as China was. You know, it's interesting about the new generation. You know, I'm one of those individuals who is not quite a millennial, not quite Generation Y, you know, somewhere in that um, gap who saw both analog products and has seen the digitalization um, of the economy. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting because technology is moving at such a rapid uh, speed, especially with internet and and the speed at which communication occurs, which has made these QR codes and, and transactions so magical. Um, the interesting thing about the next wave of technology, which at CES 2019, a lot of the rage this year was about uh, 5G technology. But yeah. the question for me is how much of that is reality versus hype? And the reason I beg that question is back when the FCC auctioned off 4G bands um, in the last decade, it went for over $40 billion for all those different hertz and waves and, and all of that to, to enable that communication. And on the first auction for 5G technology, which just happened um, in January 2019, yeah. less than $100 million was spent auctioning it off, which for me gave off a red flag like is is the technology ready or is us not ready to commit to that um i think it's more about what we use the internet for and the fact is most people can stream the video they want from netflix or anything else on their mobile device and it works perfectly well um for a long time whatever the cable company provided i always bought the fastest internet speed for my home i did it since the internet first came out this year they upped the the uh capacity again and I couldn't think of any compelling reason for me to spend $30 a month more for a gigabit of, of Ethernet. There was, I mean, for Internet, there was simply no reason because everything I do is already smooth, fast, and perfect. What does it buy me? And I think with 5G, the average consumer has simply no idea why they're going to need it. But there's a, a tremendous amount of use cases that are, I would say, more enabling of changes in our lives than directly things for consumers. For example, um, the very low latency of 5G 
opens up massive potential for communications in like self-driving cars, vehicle to vehicle communications, very low latency, high performance. That to me, it opens up possibilities, but it's not the stuff that you or I are going to buy directly. And we may never even know it was there. Um, and of course, as 4K movie streaming becomes more popular, uh, the higher bandwidth will be needed. But the billing process today, the, the way people pay per gigabyte doesn't lend itself to, to watching a 4K movie. It You couldn't afford to watch one movie. So um, things have to change also on the economics until they become interesting. So you could imagine, and I'm just making this up, but, but a company like Netflix working with telcos to provide a fixed price for 4K streaming, not a per usage price. And then I'll be happy to buy a new 5G phone, pay a fixed price, get all the movies I want, you know, at 4K. That sounds pretty amazing. Um, but that's not the way, you know, today they're all separate and it would be very expensive. Right. For uh, the last few years, we've seen all the products have been unbundling, right? The subscription yeah. for each and every service. And now there's a lot of competition occurring there. Uh, Netflix just raised their price to $13 a month. Hulu just dropped to $5.99. So you're seeing Netflix and Disney compete directly with each other. Um, but it does beg the question on uh, what is data and, and how much data is uh, actual right uh, for each and every citizen. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember uh, back in 2015 when all the telecos in the U.S., Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, were all competing with their unlimited plans, and it was truly unlimited, right? No yeah. throttling, no speed edits. And fast forward to 2019, now uh, Sprint has three tiers of unlimited. T-Mobile has three tiers of unlimited. So what does the definition even mean? It's, it's losing that uh, uh, function for a consumer. It, it has because the use cases are still the same use cases and they're trying to create tiers of service to generate, you know, more revenue. And I understand why unlimited is sort of unlimited than tiny little letters underneath, except for this or after this, or we slow down after that amount of capacity has been used. Um, and I, and I think it's all of us adjusting to the usage patterns. And I think streaming media drove really great 4g adoption. Um, I think every millennial, you know, is simply just watching stuff on their phones. I don't know what else they're doing. And I saw this in Asia before it happened in North America, people watching TV on the subway in the morning, going to work. And, you know, we didn't, in North America, we didn't even have cell service in subways and they were watching, you know, video in Asia. So maybe we're just catching up a little bit on some of the services and the usage patterns, but, you know, 5G is going to enable things that haven't been considered before. Maybe Netflix and other streaming media popularity occurred because of 4G. What will occur because of 5G? Will will you know gaming on mobile take that next level? Because gamers are very latency sensitive, very bandwidth sensitive. Maybe gaming on mobile will enter, introduce the entire next level of entertainment. I think that could be, could be quite plausible. You know, every once in a while when I want to decompress, I'll hop on Twitch and bring up the Fortnite stream and see Ninja um, or Tifu play. And, and you know, it's, it's a great experience to see, wow, in live time, I'm watching a master of their craft uh, perform their work, but often you will hear from them, you know, uh, complaints and explicitives of, you know, bugs and latency and, and things breaking. And, you know, back in the 90s, we would call this lag, right? We call it lag and it's, it's back because there's so much data moving uh, throughout the networks. Yeah. Um, you know, for consumers who are listening here on the podcast, I want to 
let you know, you know, if you're wondering who are we talking to today. So uh, actually, uh, let me just give a brief introduction. Um, this is, of course, the Humane Podcast, where we're bridging the gap on humans and machines in the age of acceleration, helping you consumers better understand how you can live your lives, how you can be part of the next digitalization. And today, my guest is Brett Greenstein. Uh, Brett uh, is a vice president and global head of artificial intelligence at Cognizant. And prior to that, um, he's led a very advanced career in Internet of Things and technology and solutions um, with a lot of consulting and major organizations like IBM, uh, moving all throughout that IoT life cycle. And so that's why we're really focusing on IoT today and seeing that direction. Um, Brett, I really appreciate you for being here and um, wanted to ask, you know, given all this experience and, and background that I'm leading into, uh, for you as someone who works with a lot of clients, you know, are there any trends or signals that you're seeing that are moving this year from the fringe um, and then are emerging to being mainstream that consumers should start to pay attention to, like 5G, like self-driving cars and so forth? Yeah, and certainly a huge part of my focus is on artificial intelligence. And what, I, what I'm seeing from companies is there's a set of roles, and this happened during the internet time too, a set of roles that are emerging within companies that are having a tremendous influence on the products and services and ways we interact with businesses that are coming up. During the internet, I'm just going to kind of go back a little bit. During the internet revolution, there were webmasters and um, graphical people that were in, with ponytails in corners of, of offices who were suddenly making web pages and creating um, content that was interesting for, for everyone else. They were not powerful in those companies in the beginning. Now they're the CMOs of major companies. They're the people who run Netflix and everything else. They're the people who bring us the web. But in the beginning, they were just HTML geeks like you know who, who like to build web pages. In, the, in this time, over the last couple of years, there's been sets of data scientists, data-centric people, digital people who understood the power and value of data. They're the data scientists behind the growth of social networks. They're the people who do the recommendation engines in, in Netflix and other things. And they are growing and they are becoming significantly more influential in every company, whether it's automakers, banks, insurance companies, healthcare. The, these chief data officers, chief analytics officers, chief data, uh, digital uh, transformation leaders, they are driving business strategy now. And they are doing really compelling and interesting projects to use data and to make companies be more digitally centric, AI powered. And they're asking really good questions of us and, and my peers in the industry. How do I take all these insights about people, what they do, what they care about, how they feel, and deliver better service? How do I reduce the cost? When someone calls up for a call center, why should you have to press two for this? Why should you have to enter your account number? Why doesn't it know me? Why doesn't it understand me? Why doesn't it um, listen and, and just simply serve what, I'm, what I need without having to go through all those, those hoops that are because of the manual steps that are in call centers today? So I think companies are really fundamentally looking at how AI and all the data from IoT and everything else is, is simply turning every business process they have inside out. From looking first at how many people do I put in a call center to get my call times down to sub-second and my wait times down. From that question, the real question is, how do I deliver better service? How do I make customers happier? How do I resolve things more quickly? 
um, through an intelligent agent rather than through, you know, a, a person I've trained. That's a really different model. And, you know, and, and it's, it's happening in every part of businesses. It's as if the technology age of webmasters uh, being these uh, people who managed IT and operations have evolved into full stack developers for the application ecosystem. It's yeah. as if the actuaries who were modeling data and econometrics and spreadsheets are now the data scientists and artificial intelligence researchers uh, to create those better experiences and you know, sticking with the theme of customer service and mm -hmm. talking earlier about Sprint and T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, I've had the, uh, I could say maybe privilege of being a customer of all four of the telecos um, throughout my life. And, you know, the customer experience cycle always varies quite significantly um, depending on who in that cycle you get to connect with. Um, mm -hmm. I find it fascinating how uh, voice uh, to text has been uh, quite solved and used with customer service for many years. But more recently now, it's almost as if the companies are trying to make predictions for you. And when you call them for customer service, it almost seems like the experience has deteriorated in the last year. Is that just something I'm seeing? Or do you think there's some you know, growing pains of implementing machine learning and AI into production? I think you're seeing growing pains, and I don't think it's uh, it's an AI challenge. I think it's a human challenge. I think um, the change management, which is the the cultural and transformational change of a business, is inhibited by the power structures that exist in companies today. The person who runs the call center is measured on how many people they manage, how many calls they do, customer sat, all these different things. But they didn't get to be an executive of the call center by having four people and a massive computer. They have 400 people. And that's how they measure themselves to some degree. There's other measures. So you've got people whose jobs are fundamentally changing because of the introduction of technology. They're not the ones who brought the technology into the business. And so they're looking at these people on the side who are now trying to disrupt their business. And it's the same reaction that traditional marketers had when the web people came. And all of a sudden, you've got these people saying, I can build web pages and create this and, 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 and market my brand. And the other are like, no, no, we advertise in magazines. We do, you know, we have a catalog. We, we, this is how we work. It's worked for a hundred years, but the web transformed marketing. It transformed engagement and buying and Amazon wouldn't exist if there wasn't frictionless um, web commerce, which was unthinkable, you know, before that. And so I think today, when you look at what customer service will become, let me give you an example. Um, in China every year, going back to China, on 11-11 is Singles Day. It's the biggest shopping day on the planet anywhere that day. And um, so everyone shops on that day. And um, I know someone who shops every year on that site, on, on, you know, on the day, on, uh, on Taobao. And every year previously, she would have to talk to merchants about sizes and shipping and all that stuff. This year, every question she asked was answered by an AI, by a bot. Um, all different stores and different merchants, but they had a bot framework that made it very easy. And I asked her how she knew it was a bot. And she said, because the answers were instantaneous and precise and helpful. She didn't talk to a single human being this year shopping. She said it was the best experience she's ever had. So I do think you can have great automated customer service, but you have to start digitally thinking and not resisting it and trying to figure out how do I mesh people and this together? Start thinking, how could it be? What Amazon asked, how could shopping be with only one click? 
They didn't say, how do I get people through a store and then push them to a catalog and talk to them? And they just said, what's the frictionless way to buy? And I think with customer service, we have to ask ourselves, what's the most automated we could possibly be? What would that look like? And how could you do it? And creating that frictionless service, is that more a result of technology and the business model that um, can make this experience for the consumer? Or is it even cultural, right? In the sense that in China, there's a lot less resistance to implementing technology as compared to in the United States, where you have the IEEE and a lot of agencies and regulations. We have a version of GDPR that passed in the Eurozone, which now passed in California and is making its way through New York State as the government shutdown, you know, has shown in the United States. So I'm just curious to what extent that could be cultural or political in nature versus a willingness to to see that through. No, it depends on the part of the market. But in customer service specifically, I don't think there's a technology inhibitor. And I don't think it's a privacy or regulatory issue either, um, because there's nothing about doing that that inherently breaks GDPR, for example. But um, the, the real challenge is that it's a user experience, design thinking kind of challenge that has to come from people who are thinking digitally first. How do I create a great, compelling experience? How do I collect the right amount of data to provide insights that'll be useful without breaking GDPR and other things? That's a design thinking user experience. We, um, we hire, there's new roles that have emerged because of AI. We actually have conversational designers now. Um, people whose sole job is to help a machine have a useful conversation with you to perform a task, um, considering you know your intent and your feelings and your tone, um, the things you're asking for, context, history, and providing a useful, not annoying experience and one that feels better. And I'm I'm sure that shopping experience on on Taobao in China, um, I'm sure there was a lot of thought into building user experience into that. And properly done, I, I there will be companies here as well that will innovate like that. And it starts with conversational designers and, you know, advances into the new digital economy on training and teaching and, and all that delivery. I know recently that uh, your organization, Cognizant, has partnered with ASU, launching you know, digital business consulting. And it seems that we're now in this age where it's no longer just business or consulting, but it is merging uh, digital with that. Yeah, you have to think digitally first. And that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do. Um, but it requires, and I, I think for, for all business leaders, there's a responsibility for people to begin to understand how AI works. Not everything. You don't have to all become data scientists, but understand how it works, what it means, and what it does. In the same way, um, you had to embrace the web. And I think the parallel is quite powerful. Um, there was a time where companies thought, if I just take my catalog, scan it, and put it on the web, I am now you know, a web company. Um, but the web was always about streamlining, automating, reducing friction, um, and designing for people. And that's why the experience has gotten so much better so quickly over time um, on so many services. And the ones that thrive are the easiest to use. And now when someone introduces something that annoys you on the web, when a, when a website, a social platform or something changes something, it can disrupt the entire you know, user base very quickly because they're used to great experiences. And when you introduce AI or digital thinking into a business, you have to kind of design from what's possible first and, and removing uh, literally the friction of using that kind of system. And some of that is, is quite sophisticated. For example, if you're talking to a, a bot or 
uh, for customer service at a telco, for example. If you say, I'd like to disconnect this line, my father died. Just something awful like that. Like, And then the, the agent, a, 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 a bot without any emotional knowledge about you at all, could say, oh, can I sell you anything else today instead? You know, no awareness that you just gave some really, really terrible news. Um, and so bringing the human touch, the the emotional understanding, the intent, the the design experience, really, um, to an AI system is critically important for its acceptance and adoption. What I'm getting a sense of is that we're in an age now of a coming of age, if you will, for AI, that 2017, 2018, everything since 2012, when the deep learning was reemerging, was testing the ground with experimentation. Uh, But now we're ready for not only production um, and experiences that uh, consumers interact with, um, but good experiences that are only going to get better each and every year. I, I, that's absolutely true. That we've certainly gone from the area of experimentation and piloting into production um, and production at scale. We, we, we get a lot of requests from customers talking about how do I scale this? How do I manage this overall? And as I introduce AI into customer service or my product, how do I manage and maintain my brand with my user base and my customers? How do I deal with the ethics of AI? How do I, you know, for example, there's, um, there's a lot of talk in the news, obviously, about things being promoted into your social news feed that may or may not be, you know, ad driven, money driven, political by nature, whatever the, whatever the thing is, people are complaining because it's algorithmically decided what's going to be presented to you. That's a form of AI and it's happening, you know, every single day. And I think you have to recognize as a company that now not just your web page is, is representing your brand, but the AIs that run your business are interacting with people either directly or indirectly, like presenting ads or you know using a bot, whatever the method is. And you have a responsibility to maintain a level of, of ethical behavior to make sure you're not introducing biases which cause you know problems at scale with AI um, that could affect your brand. I think part of it is um, going back to trust, right? How much do we trust AI to deliver us that right experience. You know, news is such an interesting um, area where you see a company and you think they're independent, but they're really not. For example, um, I love getting my news on China um, and I try to look for an independent source. And for me, one of my favorite ones is actually the South China Morning Post. Mm -hmm. And you look at it and it's described as credible, independent. And I think it's quite good. Hong Kong, China, all that mix. But most people don't know it's owned by Alibaba, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think the same thing's happening both in the U.S. and China is that you know we can put our trust in companies, um, and and that trust is to get back a specific experience um, that ideally improves um, our day by day. Um, but when it doesn't, then that's where ethics and bias become part of that conversation. Um, I think. Uh, to a technology that's been explored quite extensively with Baidu um, in China with autonomous vehicles. You know, they had uh, last New Year, the Macau Bridge Update open with the drones and self-driving vehicles. And then, you know, the United States has tried uh, to also show its strength, both through Waymo and Uber and Lyft and Apple uh, and Tesla and and many other providers. and I know this has been one of the fringe technologies that uh, has been talked about much. You know, jobs, automation is self-driving. 
that next um, era of new technology. But it's it's another question I wanted us to explore uh, with our viewers because uh, it was announced, you know, here in January 2019 that you know Apple's laying off its entire autonomous vehicle division. Tesla's laid off seven percent of its workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, Ford closed Chariot, which is its you know uh, you know peer to peer solution for getting through metropolitan cities. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, what what's some of your predictions or thoughts on uh, autonomous technology? I think if you if you look solely at the the magical level of autonomous driving, you miss all the things that it actually did bring to us already, um, and so. The application of driving assist technologies now are so pervasive. You 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 rent a car and it it buzzes when you go out of the lane, and you think how did how did it know that? It's the same technologies used in self driving cars, but being brought into practical, very acceptable, low risk scenarios for all of us. Um, there'll be a day it will come. I don't know when, but when um, when it'll be safer to drive an autonomous vehicle than to let a human being with their flawed decision-making and biases and all their problems that come along with being human beings um, come into it and make driving dangerous. So there'll be a time when autonomous is safer. Um, people have said, I've read several articles, I don't know if it's true, but you know, children under two may never get a driver's license because cars will take care of themselves and it'd be safer than letting a 16-year-old drive anyway. Um, but in the meantime, you're seeing those technologies be introduced into um, you know, safe distance um, cruise control systems and lane um, wandering prevention systems, um, 360 degree cameras to telling you when there's a person walking by. I was just in a car the other day and all of a sudden it beeped and I looked down at the screen and I, it could tell a person was in the blind spot. I was amazed by that. It was really cool. Um, but these are the practical things that are making our lives better already. And while autonomous, I think People expected maybe by 2020, we'll all be driving autonomous Cadillacs. That's not a realistic expectation. But will we have cars that are significantly safer? Of course we will. I, who would drive, you know, other than, you know, maybe somebody for fun, drive a 1969 Mustang down a highway, which, you know, doesn't even have disc brakes, I'm just, I assume, um, compared to, you know, ABS systems that stop for you without you even touching the brake pedal if someone walks in front of a car. That's, it's orders of magnitude safer today than any other vehicle before. And I think for all this technology that become mainstream, whether it's 2020, 2025, or whichever year we give it, that's uh, taking a full circle that 5G needs to make it onto the roads. Or satellites like the ones that SpaceX is launching need to get into orbit so that um, it's much quicker to transmit data. Um, the reason I bring that up is, you know, both of us being in the AI industry, um, a lot of topic that professionals have talked about recently is AI on the edge. And um, a great example of this is Chick-fil-A, uh, you know, a great uh, fast food restaurant with their chicken products and, you know, um, love them because they've done a lot with football and high school and colleges and now the NFL as they've expanded. But what's interesting is there was a feature about their technology uh, just a few months ago. And it, it said that actually all their cashier systems are now running on the edge to process payments and make recommendations mm-hmm. uh, to their servers on, you know, can I upsize this order for you? Can I recommend this? Or this mm-hmm. customer should get the free cookie. And 
Um, I think the Edge, uh, for our consumers who don't know, Edge is running uh, the machine learning or the software, but without internet connection often. I think that's going to be a breakthrough uh, for us. Um, otherwise, we have to get the 5G technology working for these autonomous vehicles to be real time. Yeah, it'll be a bit of a hybrid because, you know, certainly as computing power gets greater, uh, the ability at the edge is, is already quite impressive. There are already cameras you can buy, you know, for households that can do facial recognition. I have a device in my in my house um, that uh, can detect smoke detectors. It's a smoke detector detector. So if it hears the noises of a carbon monoxide detector or other, it uses a basically a sound algorithm to detect that that's a smoke alarm and not something else. And then can trigger an alert that can, you know, send me a message on my phone or something else. And since then, I, at CES, that same company um, added additional algorithms to tell if there's like um, broken glass or people, a baby crying, things that might be stuff in your house that would be a problem. So the ability for AI embedded systems to go into things like I think Alexa has also added a smoke alarm um, detection algorithm. You know, it, not everything has to run in the cloud. It can run in the edge more and more, but not all in the edge. There's, for example, those cashier systems, you know, in, in, in Chick-fil-A, I don't know them specifically, but I am sure they're processing payments back to a central, you know, backend system. It's just that they're allowing more and more decision-making at the edge because you get performance, lower latency, lower cost, and you're using compute power that's available. And beyond the compute power and the transactions, it ideally is leading to a more design thinking approach for a better customer experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's amazing what, what could be done. You know, your phone now is, is smarter than your computer was just a few years ago. Um, and the devices that we're all putting in our homes with Alexa and Google Home and everything else, they have a fair amount of uh, capability in them already. A lot of work, ha work happens in the cloud, but there's some stuff that happens locally too. And um, I think we're only going to see that grow. Now, IoT technologies are continuing to grow. Uh, a lot of devices are out there from a lot of companies. Is there another breakthrough device that uh, you think consumers should be on the lookout to buy? I mean, it's been the Amazon you know, Echoes and OK Googles and, and Apple HomePods. People have considered Ring for these doorbell and keyless systems. Is there that next product that you think is, is going to be making the massive ways to the consumers? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think it's going to be health related. Um, what I'm seeing is a huge energy into um, stuff that helps, for example, um, older parents live at home longer. How do you monitor family safety and health? Um, how do you even pet monitoring? I talked to a, a, a telco in Asia and they said people will pay 30 or $40 a month if you'll help monitor their pet while they're at work um, so they can leave their pet home longer, come if there's, if there's something important. They'll know if their dog barked for three hours and annoyed their neighbor. So I think there's a lot of ways to extend your eyes and your ears and the insights of what happens in your home and your family in ways that are secure and private, the critically important, um, but also help us extend our reach to take care of family members wherever they are. Um, if your parents can live at home for six more months than they would have otherwise, you know, they get to live with the comforts of their, of their pictures and their sofa and everything that they love that feels like home, what is that worth to you? It's worth a lot. And it sounds like you're hearing it here first that 2019 is the year of augmenting your experiences, whether you are two years old and you might never drive a car or you're 80 years old and you still get to be in that house you've been in since you were two years old. 
we're looking at a world where humans and machines are continuing to integrate and augment each other's intelligence. Um, the big question is how can we be humane and, and how can we continue that journey together with customer experience? It's been my pleasure to have Brett Greenstein with us here today on the Humane Podcast. Uh, thanks for being with us. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich, and if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.